Please remain standing in honor of God's word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter. And this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 10b, and then we'll go through verse 18. 2 Peter 2, beginning at the second half of verse 10. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Speaking of the false prophets, Peter says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, cursed children. Forsaking their right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that as we expound this serious and sober passage that you will give us great discernment. I pray for this congregation that they will be full of Bereans, those who eagerly examine the scriptures to see if the things the speaker, the preacher, the pastor is saying is true. May they weigh everything against the plumb line of your word, which never errs. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may not recall, because it's been a while now, but back in 1 Peter 3, Peter gave us six verses to instruct wives how they are to live towards their husbands. And then in verse 7, the men were given one verse for how they are to treat their their wives. You might be wondering, well, why were the women given six verses and the men only one verse? Well, clearly the wives need a lot more help than the men do. Or we could say that the men can only handle one verse and they're going to have difficulty just carrying that out. Uh, But if you are troubled by the disparity of verses, you may remember that Paul kind of balances it out. Because in Ephesians 5, he only has three verses for the wives, where he has has eight verses for the husbands, and then there's one verse as a summary for husbands and wives. Now, the reason why I'm pointing out the number of verses that Peter and Paul have towards husbands and wives is so that you can see when we get to 2 Peter 2, we have 22 verses that relate 
the false teachers and preachers. And relatively speaking, that's actually a lot of verses. A lot of time is devoted to addressing these false teachers and what they're all about. Which raises, for me at least, an obvious question. Why does Peter have so much to say in his epistle about false teachers? And if you're taking notes, I have three answers that I'd like to give to that question this morning. The first answer is he has a lot of time devoted to these false teachers because he wants us to recognize the imminent threat. He wants us to recognize the imminent threat. Look at the second half of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They do in broad daylight what many people will only do at night. And then he goes on and he says, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, this word translated deceptions in the ESV that has a footnote. Uh, it says some manuscripts have the phrase love feast. Uh, in the first century, Christians would gather together for these love feasts, similar to what we call our fellowship feast here, our potluck lunch. They would gather together with other believers and they would have a, a meal together and they would celebrate. And often it was during these meals that they would celebrate communion. Most commentators believe that when Paul addresses communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about what was taking place at one of these love feasts. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 20 to 22. Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It was supposed to be, but it was desecrated, so it actually wasn't. He says, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So you got some people are going ahead with the meal, and not just because they were at the front of the line for the potluck lunch, but because they didn't care about other people. And if that wasn't bad enough, some people are actually getting drunk. Apparently, they're consuming all the communion wine ahead of time. And Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. Now, regardless of how you interpret this phrase, revel in their deceptions, one thing is clear. These false teachers were present at their fellowship feast. And it was a serious threat. He said, they feast with you, which means they are present. They are there, not just out in the church, but they are there in their midst. And then in verse 14, he says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. Those who are not grounded in the faith are vulnerable, and Peter's afraid that they will be enticed. And those of you who are familiar with fishing will be aware that this word enticed has to do with how you would bait a hook with a delicious nightcrawler. At least it's delicious to the fish. And you wouldn't realize that you are being deceived, that you are being enticed. And that's what these false teachers would do. They were deceptive. And then in verse 18, Peter said, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. 
those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. The picture is you have those who are coming to a knowledge of the truth and they're, they're just beginning to escape the air of, of the world and the false teaching of the world and embrace the truth of the gospel. But these false teachers lead them astray when they could have been led into the kingdom of God. Now, aren't you glad that all this took place in the first century and that we today in the 21st century don't have to worry about false teachers in the church? Aren't you glad that's not a problem today? And I see some of you rolling your eyes, shaking your heads. We do have many false teachers in, in the church today. And if I had wanted to, I could have gone on for the next hour or two just giving you example after example of what's taking place. But I do want to give you one specific, concrete example this morning. And let me tell you that I'm doing it not because I'm trying to be uh, un. Uh, too harsh. I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I'm doing so because this person claims to speak for God. And we should know that when you claim to speak for God, you should be held accountable by God's people. Our messages are, are public. They're on sermon audio. They are out there. And whoever speaks behind this, this pulpit is accountable for what they say. And people can ask questions about what was said. I think that's appropriate. And some of these False teachers have a huge impact. And I'm giving you a specific example because I, I want you to see how they lead people astray because sometimes they're so subtle in their, in their tactics. This is from a sermon by Joel Osteen, preached just a few months back, entitled, It's Still Going to Happen. This is what he says. It's still going to happen you're saying, God, I know you're the all-powerful creator of the universe. What you promise will come to pass. And then speaking of God, he says, no person can stop him. No sickness, no addiction, no delay. All the forces of darkness cannot stop what God has purposed for your life. And if he had stopped right there, I would have said, amen. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. But what are those purposes specifically? It would have been wonderful if Joel Osteen had gone on to quote perhaps Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has purposed that you be conformed to the image of his Son. Nothing is going to stop that. If you have been born again, God is working in your life. You will, over time, you may have highs, you may have lows, but over time, you will be conformed to the image of his son. Slowly but surely, more and more, you will reflect the image of his son. You have been predestined, and nothing can stop that from taking place in your life. That would have been wonderful. Or maybe if he had quoted Hebrews 5.8, speaking of Christ, though he was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. God's purpose for your life is that you be more obedient, that you be more holy, that you be, be more sanctified. And this is what you need to know today. Nothing is going to thwart that purpose of God in your life. He has purpose that you be more obedient. And you see what he did for his son? He brought suffering into his life. 
Not to go from disobedience to obedience, but to go from one level of obedience to another. And nothing is going to stop that in your life. You will become more obedient. God's purpose in your life will not be thwarted. That would have been wonderful. I would have said amen, and I would have said, check this sermon out. However, those were not the references. This is how he began his, his sermon. I want to talk to you today about it's still going to happen. We all have things we're believing for. We prayed, we've done our best, but the medical report hasn't improved. We didn't get the promotion. We haven't met the right person. We wanted to go back to school, but nobody supported us. Tried to start our business. We had opposition, delays. People did us wrong. Now we think it wasn't meant to be. We may have given up, but the good news is God doesn't give up. Believe that it's still going to happen. Despite the giants, I'm still going to go into the promised land. Despite the medical report, I'm still going to get well. Despite the opposition, I'm still going to accomplish my dream. You're still going to have that baby. And then he says, let me declare it over you. Despite the delays, the setbacks, how you were raised, you're still going to live a blessed, fulfilled, victorious life. And the applause among tens of thousands was, was thunderous. He went on to say, God says your latter days will be greater than your former days. You wouldn't be hearing this if something amazing wasn't about to happen. Something amazing with your health, your finances, your relationship, that baby that you wanted. It's a promise that he's declaring over these people. And this is sad because many people don't have the discernment to distinguish the kernel of truth from the massive error that's surrounded by the kernel of truth. And what happens when the medical report isn't overturned? What happens when you never get married? What happens when you never conceive that child that you've been praying for? What happens? Why didn't it happen? You know what he said? Nothing can stop God except you. And once again, the implication is the problem. You don't have the faith to believe. So as if matters weren't bad enough because you're going through these difficulties, God wants to do this amazing thing, and if it doesn't happen, that, that too is, is your fault. I remember years ago, Michelle and I were at, were at a gathering. I, I'll be vague. And we met Christians, and it was wonderful. God was working in their life. We had a great discussion about God and, and Christ. And I remember the woman saying she went to the bookstore looking for a good, solid Christian book, and, and she was reading through this book by Joel Olstein. And I was like, oh, no. And, and she just didn't know any better. She was just a genuine Christian. I don't know exactly where she was spiritually. I know we had a wonderful conversation, and she's reading this garbage. I'm being polite here. People are deceived. And, and I know even when you raise names, people don't like it. Years ago in a small group, I talked about Joel Olstein, and, and I was rebuked, touch not the Lord's anointed. 
Well, here's where we need a little more discernment. If you look up that verse in context, what it has to do is don't persecute or murder false prophets who are speaking the truth in the name of God. It has nothing to do with questioning whether or not what the pastor is saying is true or not. But it, it's sad because people are, are being led astray by, by the thousands, people who, who otherwise could hear the truth and repent of their sin and come to saving faith and in Jesus Christ. Maybe they're going to church looking for the truth and they're not and they're not finding it. Peter wants us to, to recognize the imminent threat that's taking place in in the church. Second, the reason why he has so many verses is because he wants us to recognize them and to see what they're they're all about. This is how Peter began, second half, verse 10. Bold and willful, they, knew, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. This phrase, glorious ones, is literally in the Greek. It's just the glories. Uh, some think the glories refer to the glories about Jesus Christ. Others believe that it refers to angels. Still others believe that it refers to apostles or other speakers in the church. The New King James Version translates it dignitaries, so it goes with that last translation. But I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees or the, or the shrubs or the tiny little plants. I want you to see the big picture. And I, I think the main point is that these false teachers are so arrogant that they blaspheme sacred things or people of which they are ignorant Notice how Paul goes on in verse 11. He says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. This word blaspheme is it's, it's a strong word. It, it means to speak with a sense of irreverence, especially about God or other holy things. A number, number of years ago, I remember R.C. Sproul telling a story, and I don't know if he was converted yet or not, but he talks about going to church, and he partook of communion. And I don't know what church you grew up in. I grew up in a Lutheran church, and we had these, we had these little, little wafers, I know they have them in the Roman Catholic churches as well. And apparently the church he went to, uh, they had these wafers. And, and after the service, he, he said he was joking with some of his friends. And he said, what, what did you think of the communion wafer? He said, it, it tasted like fish food. What were they feeding us? And, and he said an older woman in the church overheard the conversation. And she was just indignant with R.C. that he could speak so irreverently about the Lord's Supper. She, she didn't find what he was saying amusing. These false teachers, it's not just a little, it's a little joke. They blaspheme about God or sacred things or, or sacred people. They're, they're blasphemers. And did you notice that Peter compared them to irrational animals driven by instinct? Reminded me of Psalm 73. It's written by Asaph. He was one of Israel's worship leaders, and he mentions at the beginning of the psalm that 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he says in the psalm that he, he almost turned away from the faith. He said the reason why he almost turned away from the faith is because he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. He saw all that they had and he was jealous. And because of that, he almost turned away until he went to the sanctuary of God. We would say until he went to church on Sunday morning and, and somehow God spoke to him. Maybe it was a song. Maybe it was the confession. Maybe the message. Maybe communion. And, and God restored his spiritual equilibrium and he and he was able to see things clearly. As he looked back and described what he was going through, this is what he said, verse 21. He said, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in hearts, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Asaph says, I, I was like an animal. What was I thinking? Obviously, I wasn't thinking clearly, and that's these false teachers. They're like animals. They are, they are not thinking clearly clearly about things that they they should and the beginning of verse 14 was pretty graphic they have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin the greedy person never has enough paul goes on and says they entice unsteady souls they have hearts trained in greed. They are greedy. They never have enough, which means they are never content with what God has given them, which also means they usually can't enjoy what God has given them, and they certainly can't enjoy what others have been blessed with because they're, they're too jealous. They're too, they're too envious. Some of you will recall that the multi-millionaire John D. Rockefeller was asked on one occasion, how much money would it take to make you happy and he answered, just a little more. That's, that's the greedy person, right? Just a little more. Just a little more house, just a little faster car, just a big, little bigger wardrobe, just another pair of shoes, just another exotic vacation, just another fill-in-the-blank. They're, they're greedy. It's, it's never enough. But actually, the illustration that Peter finds fitting for these false prophets comes from Balaam. In verse 15, he says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. In case you don't know, Numbers 22 tells us about this prophet. He was going to be paid a good sum of money by Balak, the king of the Moabites, and he was going to be paid by this king to curse God's people. This enemy of Israel realized that the Jews were a threat, so he thought, if I can just hire this prophet, pay him, him some money, he can pronounce a curse upon these people then perhaps I can have victory over them. And Balaam would have done it if God had not intervened. And God did intervene, even use a, using a donkey to stop him on the path that he was taking. If you want to read the details, you can read it for yourself in, in Numbers 22. 
But did you catch that phrase at the end? He was rebuked by the donkey in order to restrain the prophet's madness. Isn't that an interesting phrase? This prophet was mad. It was like an animal for what? Money. Because he was greedy. That reminded me of a book that I was reading by Richard Foster a while back. And in that book, he, he briefly described the novel by uh, Fyodor Duevsky's. It was the novel The Idiot. And Foster said, in that novel, Prince, Prince Mishkin, the Christ figure, is thrust into a culture obsessed with wealth and a number of other vices. At one point, one of the characters comments, everyone is possessed with such a greed nowadays. They all seem so overwhelmed by the idea of money that they seem to have gone mad. And that's Balaam. He was a madman because of money. And Peter says the false prophets are like that. They're like Balaam. They're mad because of their obsession with, with money. Foster went on to say, within this society, Prince Mishkin stands out like a sore thumb. Of the prince, the narrator writes, he did not care for pomp or wealth, nor even for public esteem, but cared only for the truth. In a personal letter, Dostoevsky himself said of the prince, my intention was to portray a truly beautiful soul. Foster said, the prince has no pride no greed, no malice, no envy, no vanity, and no fear. His behavior is so abnormal that the people do not know what to think of him. They trust him because of his innocence and simplicity, yet his lack of ulterior motives causes them to conclude that he is an idiot. But as you read through the novel, the question that emerges again and again, will the true idiot please stand up? Is the true idiot Prince Mishkin, the Christ figure, or is the true idiot all these other people who have gone mad over money or whatever you fill in the vice? And Peter has a full 22 verses telling us about these prophets so that we can recognize them and understand what they're all about. And in essence, he's saying they're idiots because of their obsession. Basically, I could summarize it this way, with money, sex, and power. And he says you want to recognize them and you want to avoid them like the plague. And then a third point, he has all these verses because he wants us to recognize where our souls can be fed. He wants us to recognize where our souls can be fed. In verse 17, he said, speaking of the false prophets, they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. You know that about a month or so ago, it was getting pretty dry here. I can always tell when it's dry because the pond out back is getting lower and lower. The, the grass starts to turn ground. And, and we were even praying for a while for rain. Remember that, Bob? Bob said, we should, we should pray for rain. And perhaps you had this experience. You, you wanted rain to come. And, and you would see the clouds out in the west. 
and they were getting a little dark. And it was like, that's great. Keep coming. Keep coming. And then they dissipate. They scatter. And you're like, I was so hoping we were going to get some rain this afternoon. Or think of this picture. Most of you have seen this. Maybe you've seen it in a movie. You know, you have a man, and he's going through a hot, dry desert, and he's, and he's walking, and he's walking, and he's doing great. Until a couple hours later, no water, and then he starts to get a little weary, no water. And then off in the distance, he sees what looks like a pool of water. He gets his hopes up, and as he approaches the pool of water, it turns out to be a mirage. You're like, oh, no, I, was just, I thought there was going to be water available. for. I don't know if I live, I think I'm going to die. Peter says, that's these false prophets. They hold out hope. Refreshment's coming. Energy is coming. They're going to feed me. They're going to nourish me. And at the end of the day, nothing. They don't provide anything. Their promises are all empty. And Peter wants us to see what's going on. They don't deliver what they they promise. They don't really speak for God. Can I highlight one, one difference? And there could be many, of course, but let me highlight one obvious difference that I've seen between false teachers and true teachers. False teachers are vague and ambiguous, while biblical teachers are clear and precise. False teachers are vague, ambiguous, Biblical teachers are clear and precise. One theologian observed, the distinct mark of theology today is its dreaded ambiguity. It's a good observation. You want to know what marks theology in the broader evangelical church? It's dreaded ambiguity. In describing the Puritans, J.I. Packer writes in his book, A Quest for Godliness, they would not have been interested in vague moral uplift. What they wanted was to grasp God's truth with the same preciseness of application with which they held that he had revealed it. Because of their concern for preciseness and following God's revealed will in matters moral and ecclesiastical, the first Puritans were dubbed precisionists. Precisions. You know those Puritans, they're precisions. Everything has to be precise and exact when it comes to interpreting God's word. What's up with those precisions? What are those people all about? And this is what Backer says. He says, though ill-meant and derisive, this was actually a good name them. And then he tells a story about a Puritan minister named Richard Rogers. And one day he was riding with the local lord of the manor. And the local lord of the manor was mocking him for his precision ways. And, and after mocking him for a while for his precision ways, he, he finally said to Pastor Rogers what it was that made him so precise. Oh, sir, replied Rogers, I serve a precise God. And then Packer went on to say, 
a precise God. A God, that is, who has made a precise disclosure of his mind and will in Scripture and who expects from his servants a corresponding preciseness of belief and behavior. And we who share the same Puritan estimate of Holy Scripture cannot excuse ourselves if we fail to show a diligence and conscientiousness equal to theirs in ordering our lives according to God's written word. We are to be precise Christians because we serve a precise God who is often painstakingly exact in how he wants us to live our lives. And I do think that this dreaded ambiguity does mark much of evangelicalism. I could give you many examples. Just just consider one. Just recently someone told me, someone came up to them and said, love is love. Have you heard that? Love is love. Wow. I always think, it's true. Love is love. You know what else? Water is water. Grass is grass. And, and, and my point, what does that mean? Love is love. Okay, oh, okay. love is, is love. That's a circular argument. Actually, I do know what they mean. We won't, we won't get into that. That's a message for another time. But often this ambiguity is used on purpose to skew, to twist the clear teaching of Scripture. Love wins. There's another one. Love wins. What kind of love? What does it win? Just vague statements. What what does it mean? Sometimes it's intentional, so you can fill in what you want it to mean. Here's something we need to realize. Satan is the great Scripture twister. This might be a scary thought, but he, he knows more scripture than you do. You entered into a competition, scripture, memorization with, with Satan. I don't know how many rounds you would go, but I know this. You wouldn't win. He, he knows scripture. But what he does is twist it, doesn't apply it accurately. Consider how he, he came against our Lord and in Matthew 4, when he was tempting him, and you may recall, Jesus was out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and we're told he was hungry, literally on the verge of starvation, turn these stones into bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then it's, it's as though Satan says, oh, you like to quote scripture. I, I have some scripture for you. And, and we read in Matthew 4, 6, Satan answered, it is written, or excuse me, uh, verse 9, 5, I'm sorry. Eventually I'll get it. Matthew 4, 5. Then the devil took him to the high city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. There, let's quote scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And you like Bible verses? Here's another one. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So when you hear scripture passages torn out of context and not applied 
correctly, you need to be able to come back and say, it is also written, and this more accurately, according to God's word, fits the context. You, you need to be able to do that so you're not vulnerable to false teachers. You need to say, yes, the Bible says that your latter days will be greater than your former days, but where can I apply that personally to myself, to my health, my finances, this business I'm trying to start, or this baby that I want to have? Where can I specifically apply that promise and name it and claim it for my situation? We need to be able to do that. So when it comes to Scripture, we need to use it precisely. In Ephesians 6.17, Paul said that we need to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's worth noting that the Greek word here for sword is not ramphama, which refers to a, a long sword that was longer than three feet in length. Think of a machete. A machete. That's, that's not what it refers to. Rather, the Greek word here is makaria, and it refers to a short sword or dagger that was anywhere from 6 to 18 inches. And I think that's significant because when it comes to waving around Scripture, we need to be precise. We don't just take this long sword and just whack away at things. Imagine if you were on the operating table and you were going to have heart surgery and the surgeon walks in and he says, we're ready for surgery, and he holds up his machete. You'd be like, ah! Rather, you'd want him to say, we're ready for heart surgery, and it's got these fine-tuned scalpels that need to be applied carefully. You would remind him very carefully and with precision. And that's how God's word needs to be applied, carefully with precision. We need to know exactly how it should be applied in, in every situation, which means we need great discernment. We need to be able to distinguish truth from error. And if what someone says is true, if there's a kernel of truth in there, grab a hold of it. But if there's error, we need to just let that go. I don't know if you caught this last week and Mark does opening prayer. I, I caught it. It was beautiful. In a word, he was praying that all of us, and I was down there with you, would be people of discernment. And he said something along these lines. If anything that I say is true and accurate according to God's word this morning, may all of God's people embrace it and apply it to their lives. And if it doesn't line up according to the plumb line of Scripture, then may they reject it and discard it. I love that. You know, you can tell a man right from the very beginning wants to be accurate with God's word when he humbly begins a message like that. Please accept the truth. And if I don't say anything, I'm not perfect, I make mistakes, then you, you reject it. And Peter has all these verses, and it really is quite lengthy when you, when you think about it because he wants us to be people of discernment. And I pray that you are people of discernment. You may wonder why it seems so often the takeaway is Delve into God's word. You might be thinking, again, that was the takeaway last week after Mark's message. What, what is this, part two? But we are to be people of the book. God has revealed himself, yes, in nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the mountains, the ocean, roses. But precisely, 
we have specific revelation which is found in the pages of Scripture. And it is God's word that is sufficient for salvation and living a godly life. What is God's will for my life? God doesn't want us, I don't know, gazing into the stars. He doesn't want us gazing into our navel. He wants us opening the word and reading it. So there's a reason why often the takeaway is be people of the book. And it really shouldn't just be a verse for a pastor, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, correctly handling the word truth. That shouldn't just be a verse for pastors or Moody Bible Institutes. I say that because it was the school of verse. It shouldn't just be, this is a verse for pastors, but other Christians, ah, they, they, they don't have to be good workmen. We all need to be good workmen. We all need to be Bereans, opening our Bibles, evaluating everything according to what God has revealed. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word, which is an incredible gift from you, which can lead to freedom, joy, peace. Father, I pray for this congregation that we will be discerning and that we will love your word. Pray that when we hear an admonition to be people of the book, we don't see it as a burden, but we see it as a joy and a delight to to read your word, to listen to it read, to listen to good messages that faithfully expound your word. Father, I pray that like the psalmist, we will delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. I pray that we will delight ourselves in the prophets, the psalms, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, the book of Revelation. I pray that all of it will be our delight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.